Hello, hello, and welcome back to Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi, everyone. Yep, you're still here with me, Jack, and you're still here with our guests from our last episode, because this is part two with uh, Renato from Apex Chile and Micah from Apex Norway. In the last episode, they we were talking all about kind of the differences and the similarities between the North Pole and the South Pole. And here I carry on talking to them and they talk more about kind of their own research and a lot of their fieldwork experience, of which they both have an enviable amount. And I also ask them uh, some more kind of fun, laid back, polar general questions. So yeah, so if you'd like to listen to uh, part one, then that will be available. Just go back and listen to it. Uh, But here we go. Here Here is part two. So uh, thank you for coming back once again to Polar Times. All right, let's take a little bit more of a uh, lighthearted note. Um, (laughs) uh, Micah, what is your favorite thing about the Arctic? And Renato, same question, but the Antarctic. I like how empty it is and unspoiled. It's, it's just amazing to see how, how there still can be so much land which hasn't been explored to the same extent we have explored um, the continents we're living on right now. Sure. That's, I mean, that's, that's nice to hear because you kind of have the impression that places are becoming more crowded, <laughs> even these remote and pristine places. So you, obviously you go and you still get a sense of emptiness. So that's quite nice. Yeah, I think uh, I think Mike has told my answer. <laughs> no, because it's it's basically basically the same for me. Uh, I, I always do the example of uh, can you take a look around of where I'm right now in my office, and there is really nothing natural about my office. Nothing, not a single plant or anything around my office, <laughs> and and it's a completely different situation when I, if I go to Antarctica and I'm there and right there and and, and it kind of gives me the real, realization that okay so this is it this is the the wildest that it can get <laughs> and it gives me a sense of it, when I go there it gives me this 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 feeling of um that sort of it, it might it might sound a little hippie but it, it, that things are going to be okay because this is this is as 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 natural has has less things you will have and it's beautiful and it's um it it's it's calm and it kind of reach that very important element for it's been, there's like three elements that are must be uh that are very important when it comes to happiness of, of according to research when it comes to happiness to human beings and one of them is the contact of nature uh, and so I can I can totally say from the experience it's like and the re- and why is the reason of, that I usually want to go back over and over again is that because it gives me that element in in the full extent of it my entire life is surrounded by that and for a few months and it's uh yeah it's like an energy injection to come back and 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 be in this office <laughs> where there is nothing that around <laughs> um yeah I think that's what what I like the most uh my the, the connection of the nature that you can get in places like that sure it's like a feeling that just can't really you can't really get anywhere else but i mean i feel like there must be wild places in 
Chile and Norway, that where you can get some. Yeah. I mean, my only experience is, well, not only, most of my experience is the UK, which is very crowded <laughs> and busy. There's nowhere wild. I wanted to say Norway is not a bad place to be if you like mountains and nature. And uh, yeah, I try to be out and about as much as I can. Yeah, I was, uh, I was the last year in the Netherlands for a few months. And it was funny because we wanted to go to a, uh, to a place like sort of disconnect. And it was impossible. <laughs> there was no place farther than 20 minutes far from a gas station. Sure. And whereas here in Punta Arenas, I was driving and I, I had a problem with my car. And I was in the middle of the desert, <laughs> literally in the middle of, of the Patagonia, of Patagonia without access to internet or anything. And it's really easy to get to places like that around here. And all probably in Norway as well, like Mike was pointing out. Um, yeah. Yeah. But when you go out, so when you go out to either Arctic or the Antarctic and you stand on these vast snowfields and you can't see anything for miles, or similarly, even when you're like on a ship and all around you is sea and you've been at sea for three days and you're still going to be another three days before you see land, do you not get a feeling it's kind of eerie and a bit like a bit spooky isn't this i mean is or is that part of the thrill of being in these one places like it's scary to be yeah like an isolated a little, area right? a little bit scary but a little bit kind of thrilling as well i suppose that's what i feel when i'm on on a ship I, like i say i've been on a ship for three days <laughs> and it's, uh, it's just massive rolling waves it's it's i mean it's incredible but it's also like Oh my god, this is a little, if I break it down a little bit terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I have to I have two panicking experience in Antarctica. Like it's also one of them it was because I had a had an, a, an accident in my back once in but not in Antarctica while I was I was here, but this was my first trip after that accident. And then I got start having these same pains in my back that I used to have over there. And and I was in the middle of nowhere. So so evacuating me in case I was going to have, it was going to get more serious. It, it implies an, a helicopter who knows when and just stay there for a few days. And, and that was really scary. I, I, I remember touching the surface of panic attacks <laughs> because that was a possibility when I started feeling this pain. And also same in a boat, uh, you remind me in, in a vessel, a research vessel, we've been there for 25 days. And also we were crossing the Drake and it was a very wrong decision of the captain when we crossed back and we i i i might be wrong here but it, it seems like the vessel has 12 uh, rings of the bells and uh, 12 is already evacuation of the vessel and we reach 11 which means like hey get prepared because we're more living yeah we end up being in the newspapers around you because we almost didn't make it to the train <laughs> and we're uh, and it was crazy seeing the tables flying around and, and, and people flying around, people in the, uh, we couldn't leave the rooms. And yeah, those things do not scare me enough to not go back. But yeah, it's... Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. I'd go back in a heartbeat. But. <laughs> yeah, this is still really, really scary. Yeah. I'm happy I don't... I, I, I'm happy that I've never experienced these things to the same extent as an activist. Uh, but it... it does it did remind me of um, being on the Greenland ice sheet and indeed there's nothing around, but at the same time you do have to be aware of potential 
um, polar bear danger. Uh, so polar bears wandering off way too far from the coast and ending up uh, in a place on the ice sheets where they're not supposed to be, but they do come and they have been there. So it's something you do need to be aware of. So when you go on your lunch break uh, in between deploying instruments, always make sure that you're not with the whole team facing the same direction because uh, you never know what's what's behind you. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, the threat of bears is definitely a big <laughs> difference. When, you, when you're going for lunch, try to now become the lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <That's ridiculous>. Exactly. <laughs> okay, fabulous. Um, my next question, uh, yeah. So I suppose what what is the thing, if you had to pick one, that kind of worries you the most about the future regarding the Antarctic and the Arctic. Um, I mean, you may be very optimistic about the future. A lot of people are, and there's good reason to be optimistic, but I'm sure there's also a a lot of threats (laughs) and things that people worry about. Is it like climate change? Is it um, tourism and encroachment and stuff like that? Or is it any of these things? I think, I think I'm quite optimistic about my own future, but that's different from the feeling of uh, what you have towards the future of, of your surrounding or of the world. Because um, we're looking at like uh, longer perspectives here, right? Um, so yeah, for me, that would definitely be uh, like related to climate change, seeing more extreme weather events, uh, seeing yeah, the glaciers melting and retreating in front of your eyes over the years. Um, I'm not too worried about um, like tourism to the Arctic and Antarctic, at least of what I've seen. I think that a lot of it is quite well uh, regulated. And what I like about the, these Antarctic and Antarctic cruises and tourism is that it actually opens up these worlds uh, to non-scientists or non-station uh, like uh, support people um so yeah like these people also in some way become uh ambassadors for protecting the arctic and antarctic uh so i'm actually very uh very pro uh, tourism as long as it's like well regulated and it's it's not um and there's yeah i mean there's a limit to how many people can visit these places and still be it in a sustainable way yeah that's a very good question because uh, as mike i said we're gonna be fine humans are going to be fine <laughs> we're just well, going to have to our generation yeah <laughs> yeah 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 that's true um but um i think my concern is is to be able to understand the winners and losers of climate change in antarctica as a as a biologist perspective and then and we're still digging into that like it's a it's such a fragile ecosystem and and it realized in in a, in a couple of components that are that we're trying to get as much understanding as possible and and also my biggest concern I, I also support um, sustainable tourism I think I completely agree with what Mike is saying that it, it could even make the difference when it comes to ambassadors of Antarctica. Uh, but I'm scared about what, where is it going, the Antarctic Treaty, and we are, that those are going to start uh, very soon to be re- reviewing and how countries are going to 
there's a lot of things to improve in the Antarctic Treaty. You had, um, I'm just uh, a, a little concerned about where is it going to go to if, if, if they start to accept some sort of a degree of exploration of minerals and things like that that are forbidden today. Um, uh, that's, that's one of my concerns. It's, it's a political, um, those are political decisions and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really not aware other than what you can find in online, et cetera, but uh, they, they work in a completely different level than what I work on. So I'm, uh, it, it's inevitable for me to get a little worried about to whether those politic, uh, political decisions are indeed going to be to the best of the Antarctic ecosystem and not to the best of humans in a changing world, which we will need more uh, to continue our standards of life. So, um, yeah, that kind of worries me a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, I think that would be... Perfect to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's, I mean, there's so much to worry about in life anyway, isn't there? So, <laughs> yeah, um, first, I uh, have to finish COVID. <laughs> yeah, let's start by that, because actually I got, I got two expeditions cancelled. Right. Three expeditions cancelled already in the last, this last two years. So, yeah, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about when I'm going to go back, <laughs> when right. I'm going to be able to go back. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my next question is for both of you is, do you have a favorite kind of polar fact? And um, it can be a comparison fact or something from your research or just a favorite fact in general about the polar places that you research. So during our hashtag uh, Chile versus Norway uh, outreach activity, uh, I learned that a seal is indistinguishable from a rock. Uh, we played this little game, Foca or Roca, which uh, is Spanish for a seal or rock. And we put pictures together, a seal, what could be a rock. And then you had to tell wh which one you thought was the rock and which one was the seal. And it turned to be, it, 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 yeah, it turned out to be much harder than I thought. So um, next time I see a rock, I have to look twice to make sure it's not a seal. And next time I see, I think I see a seal, I have to look another time to make sure it's not a rock. I, I have to say, I really enjoyed uh, Fuka or Roka <laughs> on Twitter. Whose idea was that? <laughs> yeah, no, I must, I must give the credit of that idea because she's my hearing us. But uh, this is an idea of Dr. Sarah Kinley, which I was uh, lucky enough to be with her capturing leopard seals in Antarctica. So we will give these rounds every day for hours and for and kilometers of walking and it just the idea just came because we will literally run into seals when we had no idea that there was a seal so so she she, she got the idea of compressing a seal in a rock and because i had a, a more more of a spanish thinking head uh, we we came up with the, the the name was um uh together in on on the field but it was her idea and we started like intentionally taking some pictures of to because like Actually, we were like, is that a rock? We were with the vines. Is that a rock? Is that a seal? <laughs> over and over again. So, yeah, and, and we really wanted to put it online. And we, we just couldn't find a, a proper um, platform to do it until I, we started talking with Mikey about this idea. And I said, well, I have this idea. It would be really nice to do some sort of 
the same with the Arctic, but I guess that's not that doesn't really happen much because <laughs> there's really no land or 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 like oh well you do have a, a few a couple of fields that are white so it might be like a white no sort of rock <laughs> or a field yeah you could do like seal um, or iceberg or something or polar bear right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah polar bear iceberg that sounds like a dangerous game <laughs> <laughs> yeah to play in person yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my my favorite fact that i also dig into it to put together the activity between both apex organizations was the hunting is history of seal hunting and general marine mammals hunting histories between the arctic and antarctica in antarctica uh, seals were hunted uh, a little after it, it, the first explorations of antarctica were with the intention of finding more seals that were already being hunted in through the coast of chile and, and other places and and they were very fast uh, depleted in the 1800 um, until the commission decided to act and they, they put together these uh, ma- ma- uh, regulations, which now forbid the... But in, a, in, the, in the Arctic, it's a completely different story. And, and it's a perspective that is really hard to understand because it's really easy to just suddenly say, like, stop killing seals. Nobody wants to kill seals. But on the other hand, you have this, again, indigenous component which uh, is a, a traditional component of humans uh, are, has re- related to, to, to the exploitation of, of seals. Those exploitations that are related to indigenous um, uh, humans in the, in the pole uh, are really not the ones that are driving the population to extinction. Those are very self-regulated exploitations. So, and it's a still, um, it's still legal in some countries, and it's, it's just really interesting to start digging into why they are legal, or whether what what is the country that is actually doing a more more uh, um, like a which one is more sustainable than others. It's a it, there's a whole information we put just a very brief comparison in our in our activity regarding that. But if you dig into it, it's, it's just a very interesting perspective because you can learn a lot from the experience of, of, of the regulation of not just seals, but also whaling in Antarctica and, and the Arctic. There is, there is also some, some regulations over there. But then you can also see like, oh, but yet it's still legal. And then just dig into that in, uh, in the Arctic as well. And it's, very, it's a fascinating fact. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Do you have like a... Um... A crowning fact from your own research, like uh, the highlight of your uh, your own research that you can tell me right now, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> or within your field that your research is related to. Uh, yes, so um, we see that the land underneath uh, the ice is uh, uplifting, and that comes from it's a slow response from ice that's long gone from thousands of years ago, uh, but also from ice that's melting right now. And it's hard to uh, distinguish these, these two sig- signals. And on top of that, um, this is also very dependent on the uh, material properties of the earth underneath the ice. Uh, and they are not the same everywhere. So in, in, in Greenland, we suspect that there is a region uh, where the material is much more viscous as like a remnant of the, uh, of the uh, hotspot, like the volcanic hotspot that is now uh, where Iceland is. Uh, Greenland, um, uh, they think that Greenland has moved over that hotspot and that le- left like a 
uh, like a significant uh, track of different uh, earth properties. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting process uh, to model and also a difficult, uh, difficult process to constrain uh, because it is difficult to, uh, to look at the earth underneath a couple of kilometers of ice. Yeah, I bet it is. Um, yeah, so two things. First, like, so you say the land is uplifting because the ice is reducing. Is that because the weight of the ice is getting less? Is that a stupid question? <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so how do you go about measuring the earth under 20 kilometers of ice? <laughs> um, so um, part of it is, uh, is done by uh, seismic observation. So you get the velocity of these uh, seismic waves uh, through the earth and they can be related to temperature anomalies and eventually to viscosity anomalies and viscosity is is uh, is like the parameter that controls how fast the uh, the earth is subsiding or uplifting in response to changes in ice mass on top of the surface uh, and then another thing that we on Greenland is setting out another type of instruments magnetotelluric instruments that measure uh, the ratio between electric and magnetic field variations. And that can be related to how much uh, water there is in the rocks. And we're, we're talking parts per million here. But that is another thing, uh, apart from temperature, from the seismic observations, the water content is another parameter that, uh, that has an impact on the viscosity of the earth material. Um, so by combining these different geophysical data sets, we hope to get a better, better idea of, of uh, what the material properties are like. Okay, interesting. So when you say seismic surveys, you produce kind of like, you produce seismic waves and like fire them into the ground. Is it like ground penetrating radar or is that something totally different? For these um, seismic uh, surveys, we look, uh, we're looking at uh, a couple of hundred kilometers uh, in the earth and um, these are the seismic observations are passive observations um, so uh, we have uh, an earthquake or another event somewhere uh, that makes the, the, the ground vibrate and then somewhere uh, at the seismic stations we, we pick up these, uh, uh, these signals and then we can relate that to uh, the path that it takes in the earth and um, and the velocity uh, of these vibrations okay. along, along the path. Yeah, that sounds easier. Well, not easy, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have two facts. So you're going to have to, you can decide which one you end up. Okay. Putting, putting <laughs> I'll leave that to the editor. No, because I was, thinking more of a, I was thinking more originally on a funny fact of being on the field, but um, I, I also got a, like a more scientific uh, fact um the scientific one is that i'm i was i was lucky enough to work on i, I work in foraging ecology which is the ecology of get of obtaining energy to survive in in in, in my case in marine mammals specifically in antarctic fur seals and this colony on livingston island is the is the southernmost colony that you can find breeding colony you can you can still find several animals to the toward the south but they are not really breeding. So it's a breeding population, a colony, I'm sorry. And so the question of my whole thesis was like, how, how are they doing it? How, how are they, why, why there and not south, more southern than that? Um, what, is, what are the strategies they use to 
be able to obtain food, and especially in a highly uh, variable environment. And and how how is this uh, associated to when when they even they are pushed even more by some um, oceanographic events such as El Nino? Like if, if there is a lack of, of abundance, what are the strategies they use behaviorally to to be able to obtain the food? And then have such an expensive energetically expensive process of like such as lactation which is the most expensive one for my mom um and it was really cool the way that, that how how different those strategies are there there still have some sort of a flexibility on on the on the strategies between years when they and and what i really like about that fact is that there is already literature with other species of how they projected how they are projecting how the animals like i said before how the animals will will uh, move around to be able uh, at the same time has krill distribution change. What I like about this uh, specific uh, um, like approach that I took was that we were able to see that. We were able to see that, that because uh, an El Nino, for example, an El Nino scenario would be later a more long-term scenario for those places. And, and it also indeed kind of talked with the predictions that you can find in the literature of what are they going to do. Um, we're still far from actually knowing what is going to happen, but this is that kind of gives some sort of glance of, of, of how Antarctic fossils at least will, will respond to some, some of the changes that are projected. That was, a, that was a scientific one. The funny one, <laughs> the funny one was that um, this was part of a, of a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration program from NOAA, uh, which is the Antarctic Living Marine uh, program from NOAA, uh, from the US. And they have been monitoring here for a long time, not just uh, first use colonies, but also penguin colonies. So we were basically in the same research station with a team that was two people, two, three people working with pinnipeds and two people working with penguins. And we spent the whole day with pinnipeds and they spend the whole day within the colonies of penguins. So it was really funny when it comes to dinner later, we will all have dinner together and that people will start talking <laughs> the language of their own species that they are working on, for example. And I always remember Tony saying like, uh, we, we knew that that was past the south, for example, when he will start like, <laughs> start doing like a penguin because okay Tony wants to stop <laughs> and then we'll or, or, or another guy that will start saying hey did you see the uh, eyelash of that seals that we saw yesterday they're beautiful <laughs> so <laughs> this is after five months of being in the field you can also start seeing these comments that you will never find in other places yeah it's fun isn't it when the scientists kind of like start to assimilate into the colony that they are yeah, yeah, yeah. I was having dinner with a penguin and a seal that day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Oh, yeah, that leads me perfectly on to the next question, Moses. You both have um, quite extensive fieldwork experience. Um, I'm super jealous you've both been to kind of north and south. <laughs> do you have any, so what were your, do you have any fieldwork highlights? If you had to pick one moment, I feel like I've said that if you had to pick one quite a lot. Tell me a few, if you like, <laughs> what were your fieldwork highlights? I have a funny story. Sure, yeah. Yeah, we'd love a funny story. <laughs> okay. Or, okay. Um, so on the Greenland ice sheet, where we were uh, with a team of four, uh, and uh, most of the days we would drive up 
quite far out of camp. Like we, we will drive uh, a couple hundred of kilometers to deploy instruments or pick up instruments. And um, so imagine this big, vast, white, open space and snow and ice all around. And somehow we managed to overheat the snowmobiles we were driving on, which is something I'd never imagine uh, that that could happen being on an ice sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we did experience a few uh, warm days and the snow scooters weren't blowing up uh, with the wind, wasn't blowing up enough snow to cool the engine. So that's uh, that's why that happens. But, um uh, the lead scientist, uh, Kate Selway, actually saw the positive side uh, of things because now she could heat up her um, her lunch pack on the engine of the uh, of the <laughs> snowmobile while we were waiting for the engines to cool down to continue. Um, so I guess there's always a, a bright side to uh, <laughs> to things. Oh, incredible! <laughs> I love how inventive you have to get in the field. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I have a, I have a club. Well, I, I've been going to Antarctica for diving too because of other projects that I have been involved with, and with the Chilean Antarctic Institute. And yeah, those are um, probably some some of them are like highlights, such as uh, running into a leopard seal, because you hear all these stories of uh, kind of that how dangerous can leopard seals be, and but in reality, it it was a horrible thing what happened that it was actually from from the uk program that the the person that died on i think it was in the end uh early 2000 2003 and from there a lot of yeah and from there a lot of regulations changed but in reality when you when it comes to you uh running into these guys underwater they are more curious than um than aggressive and so, so we were just diving and this uh, young, very young uh, leopard came. And uh, this was the first year also, this was my first year in Antarctica. So I was uh, super, super <laughs> stressed. And, but I think once, once you realize that he's, he's showing a pattern of, of, of really not, not, not trying to attack or anything, it was just beautiful. And having this humongous animal around you and in a, such a, peaceful place such as under being underwater i think one that's one of the my highlights and also the fact that we i mean this might sound very um obvious but the fact that we are we are capable of capturing marine mammals and put them to sleep and, and just be there with the animal while he's sleeping and and so close being being able to be so close with uh, uh as part of uh, like respect respecting also all the ethics and regulations necessary to be able to put to sleep uh, an animal for a little longer. And then the, the after experience of you walking up right next to the guy that you captured the day before, and he's absolutely fine with you around. It's just the proof of very successful few years of testing the best way of capturing these guys. So they don't have any traumatic experience after. And um, yeah, I think those are my two highlights of work. I'd have loved to have seen a leopard seal, but I never did. But then also I can't complain because maybe next. (laughs) 
Okay, that brings us to the final part of the episode. We like to call it the Polar Plug. This is where I give you guys two minutes to talk about something, that anything that you'd like to promote to the general public. So, uh, Micah, take it away. So the next thing that uh, Apex Norway as a national community uh, is focusing on is the is uh, the organization of um, of a early career scientist event uh, as part of the Svalbard Science Conference uh, coming uh, next November. Um, the the it will be a day with uh, keynote speakers and poster sessions, and it's uh, targeted at uh, Svalbard centric science. But anyone with some uh, Arctic focus is welcome welcome to join. Uh, and the workshop aims to bring together early career uh, and established researchers with yeah with any interest uh, in research or field work uh, uh, in Svalbard or the Arctic. Uh, and this day is uh, is organized in collaboration with the UK Polar Network uh, and uh, Apex Russia. Yeah, I'm also gonna uh, promote some Apex Chile activities and hopefully also to invite some people. We we started this uh, activity which is called uh, Polar Gatherings uh, last year, and the purpose of it was basically to replace a little bit the lab life that we're lacking today because we're not going to the lab. Uh, so we we give some uh, we give a room to scientists to. Or, or young scientists or, or people that is within their PhDs or, or master degrees to discuss whatever they want to do, discuss. This is a, um, just basically a conversation. We may, made an effort uh, to put some, uh, some professionals um, that are related to the area so they can actually take as much advantage as possible to a gathering in which they either will show results or they will just want to discuss the methodology itself. Whatever you would do in a regular um, non COVID-19 life in which you will go to your lab and present some results, et cetera, to the lab. So last year was purely a Chilean approach in which most of the um, in, in people that we invited was um, scientists from Chile. But today we will, I mean, this year we would like to extend it a little bit more to broad and try to come up with some um, way of helping also other students around the world. And also in, 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 uh, it will be in English. So whoever needs to train in English, which is something that it's very important for South American at least and Central American, um, it also gives you the chance of doing that too. So at some point we're gonna release um, a call for like to in, invite people. There is also a call for inviting people to organize one of these uh, uh, conversations, gatherings, um, and yeah, and we'll keep you posted in apexchile.cl, which is our website. Um, yeah. Okay, fabulous. That, that both sound like great events. Um, also, are good adverts for our Apex National Committees. So, if you're listening to this now and you're a young, or not necessarily young, just a polar early career person, then um, yeah, you should check out what your national committee have on because they often. Do great events like this. Do Apex Chile and Apex Norway have any collaborations coming up in the future? Good question. Yes, we are planning on uh, continuing our collaboration. And uh, this time we would like to involve school kids in both Chile uh, and Norway. So we have a few IDs lined up which haven't uh, taken exact uh, form yet. Uh, but one of the ideas is to have a Norwegian-based scientist who also speaks Spanish 
lecture uh, Tyrian schools kids, kids on Arctic science and vice versa having uh, a Chilean-based scientist uh, lecturing Norwegian school kids in Antarctic science. And that's can luckily be done in English. Uh, and then another idea was that uh, Chilean kids can send letters to Norwegian scientists. So we, we bring them in touch with Norwegian scientists with questions they have about uh, the poles or, or science or yeah, anything related to, to polar science. Uh, and then also the other way around, Norwegian school kids can send uh, letters with questions to uh, Chilean scientists. Yeah, we, we, we already talked about the inclusion of, of, of kids on, the, on our approaches since the very beginning of this collaboration. And now we are, uh, we've been working at this. I have been working here in the putting together the schools that might be potentially uh, interacting with us and what is the best platform of doing that to um so yeah but that's uh that's uh definitely gonna come and we we don't know the, the day yet but we're definitely gonna inform you through our social media and when is it gonna happen um yeah at, i mean we we wanted to do it long term and that doesn't mean probably only this year so we'll really hope to achieve a few more activities together and yeah it's uh it's something that we are gonna to do the best we can according to our times also <laughs> as a PhD student. All any of us can do. <laughs> can yeah, exactly. That sounds, uh, yeah. That, sounds, that sounds great. I love the um, collaboration and how Apex can bring these things together. It's a, it's a perk. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. That, um, and sadly, that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Please don't remember, um, don't remember, please do remember to like, rate and subscribe to Polar Times on your podcast shop of choice. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us. We have a Gmail and that address is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Once again, the address is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com or you can contact Apex directly on Twitter. Um, and their, their, um, their handle is at polar underscore research. So all that's left for me to do is to thank both of my guests, Micah and Renato. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Jack. This was really, really fun. <laughs>